Good evening, GYC. Please have a seat. We are happy to see all of you out this evening, and a big welcome to our audience also joining us live through Three Angels Broadcasting Network all over the world. And here in Minneapolis, we've had an exciting blessed day today. Um, there have been a potential of six sermons and seminars you could have heard today if you were on your feet and um, anxious to get all the blessings out of this conference possible. Um, and tonight you will hear your seventh sermon for today. Um, Coming up just here in a few minutes. But first, though, we will have a few other things, starting off with our opening prayer by uh, Luke Whiting, who is our vice president for programming. Before we bow our heads for prayer, I just wanted to give you all an update on Alistair Wong. For our live television audience, Alistair is our vice president of logistics. He's been hospitalized uh, for some nervous problems. And I have good news. He is... His condition is improving just in the past few hours. So your prayers are working, but don't stop. Now's the time when we need to pray even harder. Amen. We know that our prayers are working. We know that God is hearing us. Now's the time to step it up a couple of notches. So I'd like to invite us now in our live audience if you would join me in prayer, you can bow your heads. I'm going to kneel, and I would also like to invite our three ABN audience to join us in praying, lifting up GYC and Alistair. Our most precious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you in humility, Lord, feeling our need. Lord, tonight I want to lift up our brother and friend, Alistair Wong, in a very special way. Lord, I know that the devil has been working to bring him down, to discourage him. And Lord, I pray tonight that you would lay your healing hand upon him. We're excited about the improvements that we've seen, and we just pray that things would continue to look up. I want to pray tonight, Lord, for our message for the speaker, that your spirit, your presence, your angels would be in this room. Speak to us, Lord. Take the words and drive them into our hearts. We all have different needs, Lord, and we all need to hear different things tonight. And I just pray that that would be a reality. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Good evening once again. I have the distinct honor and privilege tonight to interview people for our Something is Happening section. Our Something is Happening section is an, an attempt to get GYC attendees more involved in the church when they go home to their respective areas. So I brought up here some of my friends. I'm going to ask them some questions, and we're going to try and get you a little more active in church work. Amen? Amen. Jeremy, first of all, tell us your name. My name is Jeremy Wong. Jeremy Wong. Where are you from? I'm from Southern Indiana. Jeremy, about two years ago, you told me you were inspired by something in about the month of December. What was that? GYC. Amen? Amen. So you went to GYC two years ago. You were inspired. What did you want to do? Well, I was inspired uh, with that last sermon that Pastor Finley preached, the challenge and dedication. And in my deepest soul, there's this fire. 
in my heart that I could do evangelism. The young people needed to be involved in evangelism. So I took that fire. I took that fire and brought it back to southern Indiana. And I was talking to my church about young people being involved in evangelism. So you had a fire that you left GYC and you knew you wanted to do something. You wanted to be involved in evangelism and someone came along to help you out. What program was that? That was Youth for Jesus. ASI Youth for Jesus. Now tell me a little bit about that. What, I mean, I don't know it that much. What, what happens in Youth for Jesus? Well, uh, it's a very vigorous schedule. Youth for Jesus is a program in the summer where young people can get involved in evangelism. I'll tell you a little bit about the schedule we have each day. We get up about 7 in the morning. We have devotion, then we eat breakfast, and then we have class from about 10 to noon. And then after that, we have chores to do. See, Youth for Jesus doesn't only train you in evangelism. They train you to be well-rounded citizens. So they have us do chores, clean toilets, wash dishes, all that good stuff. And then after that, we eat lunch, and then we go uh, for evangelism, knocking on doors, following leads from about 3 to 6 5.30. Now, 5.30, we come back, have dinner, and then we have the evangelistic meeting, and the youth are involved with helping with the church, help ushering, or helping with the preaching. Sounds like quite an action-packed month. Yes, I, it is. I have to backtrack just a second. I, like Justin Kim, don't want to lie to you. I do know a little bit about Youth for Jesus, and I have been involved in it. In fact, I was thinking about this. Our executive committee of, of GYC, over half of them have been involved in Youth for Jesus. So truly, it is an amazing program. I would recommend it to anyone. Jeremy, there might be someone out there that's thinking about Youth for Jesus. Maybe yes, maybe no. What would you tell them? I would tell them to go. I mean, Youth for Jesus has changed my life. It's changed my life spiritually. Um, There's no other feeling with God using you after you've preached a sermon. And then people are are responding to God's appeal. People responding, coming forward and uh, giving their lives to God. And my life wasn't only changed, but other people's life was changed. I saw many of my friends give their heart to Jesus. I saw one of my friends who was afraid of prophecy, afraid of the last day events. And then through this uh, Youth for Jesus, she found peace in Jesus Christ. And she knew that Jesus Christ was the only protection. I saw people who had a unforgiving spirit, who was harboring hatred in the heart. And through Youth for Jesus, they were able to give that up and have peace in the heart for the first time in many years. So youth for Jesus definitely changes lives. Amen. This guy turned into quite a preacher, wouldn't you say? I'd like to ask a few questions of Danny. Danny, why don't you first of all start by telling us your name? Danny Houghton is my name. Danny Houghton. And and what do you do? I actually am, uh, I manage a software development company, and I also uh, work and volunteer with ASI. Now, you work and volunteer with ASI. You're a, somewhat of a young person. We could say that. What, what's your specific role in ASI? I actually oversee communication for our, um, our ASI here in, uh, in North America. Now, here's the thing I'm thinking. We have quite a few people who have probably heard about ASI. Maybe even our viewing audience has watched ASI at some point in time. And, and they know that sermons are preached and, and things of this nature. But what else happens at ASI? ASI, actually, I've, I've had the privilege of uh, being associated and affiliated with ASI since I was seven years old. And uh, it really is a wonderful place to go and meet professionals, people that own their own business, people that are involved in ministry, 
or, or uh, people that are just, um, you know, they work in a, a workplace and they want to get together and learn and, and discuss with other people how to better share Christ in their marketplace. Does it sound exciting, yes or no? Something that maybe you'd want to attend? I just ask, why don't you tell this? Through your eyes, how has ASI impacted your life? You know, it was funny, Justin, because when you asked me that question we were prepping, I thought about it, and it was something that I didn't really... You know, it's, it's one of those things where the impression is just there and you didn't even realize it that much. But, you know, you always want to be associated with something that where people are good at what they do, you know. And especially when we're doing something for the Lord, you want to, you want to be first class in the way you do it and give it your very best. Amen? And, and when, you, when you spend time with people in ASI, you're, you're associating with people that work in the business world that are very good at what they do, but they've made their priority not so much making money and succeeding in the world of business as much as looking at how they can find better ways to use their business as a platform to share Christ. And for myself, you know, as, as I began to make career decisions, I think that that influenced me in a major way to look at how I could use my talents and my skills to glorify God rather than just looking for ways to make money and being successful in the world of business. Amen. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I got to be an entrepreneur, own my own business, and then I can be part of ASI? That's not true. We do have a lot of members that, are, that do own their own business, that are entrepreneurs, but there is also what's called an associate membership. So you don't have to own your own business and have employees to be a member of ASI. And in fact, I want to invite each of you as you are moving into the, the realm of, of working professionally, if you're in college still and you're, you know, once you get out, we want you to be a part of ASI. Um, you can become an associate member and, and rub shoulders with other people, other professionals that are looking for creative ways to get better at sharing Christ in their marketplace. Sounds exciting. Danny, you better tell us a phone number, a website, or just, you know, if someone's excited, how do they find out more about it? You can go to asiministries.org. That's www.asiministries.org. Or you can call our office. The number is 301-680-6450. Again, that's 301 301- Six eight zero six four five zero. Thank you very much. The next person I want to introduce you to, maybe you know or maybe you don't, this is Chelsea Jordan. Chelsea is our upcoming Vice President of Evangelism for GYC. Chelsea is going to tell you about probably the most exciting project GYC has going on. And that's somewhat of a bold statement, but I'm telling you what, friends, when this project takes off, things are going to happen in the U.S., and, and eventually they'll happen in the world, but, but we'll get to that. And Chelsea, I'll just ask, tell us all about it. All right. Three years ago, I was sitting in the auditorium in a seat just like you are tonight, and I was hearing inspiring sermons at GYC. I had gone on outreach. I was excited, and I was going back to my home church wondering, what could I do next? And as I went home, praise the Lord, by the grace of God, mentors came into my life that encouraged me in evangelism. I went through one of our training schools, and about a year and a half later, I found myself knocking on doors. There I met a lady named Courtney. She was 22 years old. She had three children, and her boyfriend was a Muslim. We started the Bible studies. She didn't know what she believed. She was confused. As we went through the studies, we got to the topic of salvation. And as we went through the study, I was getting to the end and I was nervous. I had never asked somebody to accept Christ before that had never done that. And I was getting to the end and I was getting nervous and and kind of shaky and I was doing it just as I was trained to do. 
And I made the appeal and I shared the verse with her. And I, I said, Courtney, do you want to ask Jesus into your heart? And there was silence. And I got a little nervous and she looked at me and she said, no. I froze. What do I do next? They didn't teach me what to do. She said, no, what do I do? And I began to panic and I sent up a quick prayer. Lord, give me the words. And I looked at Courtney and I said, Courtney, share with me what's going on. She shared with me that her boyfriend, who was a Muslim, would be angry if she ever accepted Jesus. And she absolutely couldn't. And so as, as I shared some more promises and verses with her, we came to the end and I shared with her that today is the day of salvation. We can't put it off a second. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. And with tears in her eyes, Courtney said, Chelsea, I want to accept Jesus. I don't know how. I said, let me pray with you. I'll pray and then you can follow me. I said a prayer for Courtney and as I, as I closed my prayer, there was again silence and I heard a, a voice through tears say, I don't know how to pray. And right then, I shared with Courtney that she could just talk to Jesus from her heart. Just express to him. Talk to him as a friend. And the next words that I heard were the most beautiful prayer I've ever heard in my life. Courtney right then asked Jesus into her heart. And in the middle of her prayers, I'm crying and she's crying. And my heart's just soaring. She's inviting Jesus into her heart. Right then, the door busts open and guess who walks in? Her boyfriend. And he's angry. And I, I freeze again. What do I do when I send up another quick prayer of help? And Courtney doesn't stop for a minute. She keeps praying, Lord, come into my heart. I know that you've been with my family before this and you're with me now. Be my savior and the Lord of my life. I want change in my life. And she's crying and accepting Jesus. And she kept on praying more boldly and more firmly than ever before. I walked out of that place. My life changed. Do you want an experience like that? Do you want to be part of evangelism where you can have that experience where God uses you as a tool for somebody to accept Jesus into their heart for the first time? We have an exciting project. I want to call Pastor Sean Boonstra to come out. We are working on a project called I Preach GYC and It Is Written. I'm going to let Pastor Sean share with you how you can have this experience. Thank you, Chelsea. You know what I've discovered is that there are some things in life that you only learn by doing. Uh, Bungee jumping would be one of those things that you only really learn by doing. You could read a book about bungee jumping, and you could know all the facts and figures. You could even take out a scientific calculator and, you know, punch in your body weight and measure the wind and, and check all of the factors, and you could mathematically prove that you know that the cord's going to stop you before you hit the bottom of the river. But you don't really know about bungee jumping until you put the cord on and you jump. There's a lot of things in life like that. Skydiving. You don't really know it until you do it. And evangelism. We can read a lot of books about evangelism. We can take courses in evangelism. But you don't really know evangelism until you do it. And right now is probably the best time in the history of planet Earth to try. Because I have noticed that the world is breaking wide open for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have this promise in Revelation chapter 18 verse 1 that this mighty angel at the very last moments, Chelsea, just before Jesus comes, lights up the whole world with the glory of God. So we, as a church, have a handwritten guarantee from God that our work is going to explode at the end. Evangelism is only going to increase. Now, when 
I first joined the church, my pastor did me one of the biggest favors anybody has ever done me. He said, Sean, would you like to help me with an evangelistic meeting? I said, well, I think I would, because what I have learned through the three angels' messages is really exciting. It has changed my life. I would love to learn to share it. He said, great, we'll do a meeting together. What he did was open the meeting on the opening weekend and then tell me I have to go away for six weeks. Sean, you will finish these evangelistic meetings. There is no way to learn evangelism except by doing. Right now is one of the greatest moments in the history of planet Earth, particularly here in North America. Right now I'm working on an evangelistic campaign for the city of Portland, Oregon. Some time ago, Newsweek magazine put out a map of the United States that showed state by state people's religious preferences. You know, some states were marked Protestant and other states were marked Catholic. But when you went to the Northwest, when you went to Oregon State and Washington State, they left it blank. There are no religious preferences. And I've been told many times that you just can't do evangelism in a place like the Northwest. It is hard. It can't move forward. It can't take place. So we've decided to try it anyway because God's promise is that he will light up the whole world with his glory before Jesus comes. Now, Chelsea, here is what's been happening. In this place where it cannot be done, we sent out a simple uh, card in the mail. It had a picture of Christ, the invitation by Nathan Green, one line that said, are you interested in prophecy in this city, Portland, Oregon, where it can't be done and nobody's interested? So far in the last four weeks, we have had 1,200 requests for personal Bible study. And that's remarkable. Amen. It's not just Portland, Oregon. It is happening all over North America. I am finding stories of people coming to evangelistic meetings because an angel invited them right here in North America. It's taking place right now. I have had people who have come to meetings and told me that they saw the whole meeting in a dream a month before we opened. And that when they walked into the auditorium, it was exactly what they'd been shown in the dream. That is not overseas. That's right here in North America. There has never been a moment like the moment right now. And so here's what we want to do. I don't want to have all the fun by myself. And so it is written with GYC in partnership are launching what we're calling the I Preach program. For a period of one year... I'm going to personally mentor and coach young people in evangelism. I'm going to help with GYC. It's a joint project. We will help you hold a meeting of your own in your city so that you can see this happening right where you are. We will coach. We will mentor. We will use technology. Using the Internet, I can come visit you right in your home. And we can talk about evangelism and help you see those things take place in your town. It's called I Preach. We'll provide coaching, I'll provide mentorship, we'll provide moral support, we'll even help finance some of those evangelists, no, we'll help finance your evangelistic meeting. Now here's how it works. I can take for this first year, GYC and it is written together with the I Preach Project, I can take 50 candidates the first year. So. You have got to be here at GYC to apply for this. And I'm saying that because I know some are watching by television tonight. I am so sorry. But for this year, it's got to happen here at GYC. Tomorrow morning at 8.45 a.m. What time? 
8.45 a.m. right here in this auditorium, I will meet with all interested parties to walk you through the application process so that you can enter this mentorship program for a period of one year. You've got to be here at GYC. It is open to those who are 18 or older or, or turning 18 even this coming year. If you're turning 18 in 2008, that's fine too. Tomorrow morning at 8.45 right here, you have got to be here in person to take advantage of these resources and mentorship program to give you the skills you need to win your city for Jesus Christ. Amen. Did you hear that? You can, you can get online. You have the training right there in your own home. You can watch Pastor Sean and get his expertise online. You have someone you can call, a trained evangelist or Bible worker. If you run into trouble, you have someone you can call. You have the manual right there, step by step. Everything there, even financial support. It can't get any better than that. It doesn't get any better than that. Um, I know that uh, I have never yet, Chelsea, in the years I've done evangelism, God has never let me come away empty-handed. We want to make sure that that happens Amen. for people here, that they see the success out of God's blessing in North America right now. Amen. This is a great opportunity. So what time tomorrow? 8.45 tomorrow morning in this auditorium. I want to see this place packed because this is an awesome opportunity to be a soul winner for God. Thank you. Thank you. Our speaker this evening is... Pastor David Shin. He is the associate pastor for the Village Seventh-day Adventist Church in Berrien Springs, Michigan. And he was ordained to the gospel ministry actually just this summer. And he was married three weeks ago. And I believe his beautiful bride is somewhere in our audience here. Um, he loves ministering to young people. And I believe that will be evident through his messages that he'll be bringing to us um, and this evening's message happens to be called The Inner Life of Devotion. I'm looking forward to um, hearing how it touches each of our lives. And, but first, we will have a musical selection brought to us by Camille Aragonas and her friends.
as we begin. Father in heaven, we thank you this evening for the privilege and opportunity that we have as your people to open your word, to study. And Lord, this is eternal time. What an awesome privilege it is to worship you this evening in spirit and in truth. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and to our minds, and we ask that the Holy Spirit that inspires would also be the Spirit that instructs in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this evening. I hope you brought your Bibles, and I'd like to encourage you to bring your Bibles every evening. Tonight's message is entitled, The Inner Life of Devotion, and I'd like to, before we go to the book of Daniel, set a little bit of an introduction a justification for the topic of our study here tonight. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 1. Now this is the last, what we call the eschatological chapter. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, Do you not see these things? Assuredly, I say unto you, Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. 
Now, Jesus has just taken a tour of the temple, and the disciples come to him after he has just made this earth-shattering statement regarding the nature of Jerusalem. What did he say? There shall not be one stone that is not left upon another. And in the disciples' mind, they could not imagine a day that Jerusalem would not be in existence. And so they asked him this question in verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You'll notice that there's a misunderstanding if you look in verse 3. The disciples equated the destruction of Jerusalem with what? The end of the world. And Jesus, instead of correcting their misunderstanding, proceeds in Matthew chapter 24 to brilliantly give a, a chapter describing both the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world. And there's a lot of things that we can bring out of this chapter, but I'd like to skip down to verse 15 as we introduce our topic for tonight. And he says, Therefore, when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whosoever reads, let him what? Let him understand. Now, there's a lot of different things that we can bring out of this verse, but I'd like to just make three simple observations regarding this passage as we begin here tonight. Number one, Jesus assumes that Daniel is a prophet. Amen? In other words, we can study the book of Daniel and know that he's inspired by God. And number two, Jesus points out that the book of Daniel has end-time relevance for his people living right before the end of time. Now, I'd just like to stop here for a moment and say that there have been a generation prior to us that has gotten kind of burned on prophecy. And as a result of this, we have raised a whole generation of young people, as I've worked with young people in the past, that are prophetically illiterate. And I praise the Lord for GYC, amen? And so here we have this divine endorsement by the Son of God saying, if you are living right before the imminent return of Jesus Christ to study and read the book of Daniel, he's inspired by God, amen? And I don't know about you, but that's a pretty good endorsement. Now, I like to read a little bit, and there's a question that I like to ask uh, some of my friends if I haven't seen him for a little, bi- a little while, and I ask them this question, are there any books that you would recommend? And depending on the person and depending on the recommendation, I will run off to Barnes & Noble and spend 50 to to $100 just based on that person's recommendation. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a pretty good endorsement by Jesus Christ. Amen? And so with this endorsement to study the book of Daniel, I'd like to invite you to turn over with me to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. We're going to be spending most of our time in Daniel chapter 6, but I want to set a little bit of a stage for what we're going to be studying here tonight. Daniel chapter 1 and what was actually going through the mind of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. There are 12 chapters in the book of Daniel, and there is prophecy that is intermittent. We have the 1260, the 1290, the 2300 day prophecy, 1335, and a myriad of other prophecies. But intermittent, all the way through these 12 chapters, there are stories that are all the way through them, and there are eight stories 
Six of the stories are characteristics that we are to possess while these prophecies are being fulfilled, and two of the stories are characteristics that we are to avoid as these prophecies are being fulfilled. Daniel, incidentally, means God is my judge, and it is a type of the last generation living right before the imminent return of Jesus Christ. So in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, into the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. According to Leslie Harding, Daniel was about 17 years of age. He was a teenager. Most likely he saw his parents killed before his very eyes. And he says that Daniel was um, under the eunuchs. In other words, he was, he was castrated. He was emasculated. His body was mutilated. And he had to go on a thousand-mile march from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, I want you to place yourself this evening in Daniel's mind. The General Conference, Andrews University is smoldering in ashes. You have just seen your parents mutilated before your very eyes. You've been castrated, and you have to go on a thousand-mile march. I don't know how far that is from from Minneapolis to Washington, D.C. And Daniel still remained faithful. Now, I'd like to pose this question to you as we approach Scripture and go to Daniel chapter 6. What was the secret of Daniel's success? Don't you want to know? Don't you want to find out what was it that kept Daniel faithful? Here he is. He is entered into a secular university, literally, in Babylon. And he remains faithful. He goes from being a slave, a student, to the second in command of the most powerful country in the then-known world. What was the secret of Daniel's success? I'd like to invite you to turn with me a few chapters over to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 and verse 1, we're going to be reading 1 through 9 and just draw out a simple illustration from the life of Daniel. And it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that Daniel would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself among among the governors and the satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. So the governors and the satraps sought to find some occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against Daniel unless we find it concerning the law of his God. So the governors and satraps thronged before the king and said unto him, King Darius, live forever. And the governors of the kingdom and administrators and satraps and counselors and advisors have consulted together and established a royal statute to make a firm decree that whosoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you or king shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. Therefore, king Darius, sign 
the written decree. Now, I'd just like to point out a couple of things. Number one, there is a universal law regarding worship. Furthermore, there is a death decree for anyone that worships any other god or man for 30 days is to be thrown into a den of lions. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been bitten by an animal before. Anyone bitten by a dog? All right, there's quite a few. I remember I used to canvas. And uh, anyone here used to canvas before? And we used to have this little trick in canvassing. You don't just walk in any fence. You go up to the gate, and Eugene Pruitt taught me this trick. And for those of you that learned this, you shake the gate and you whistle. And then if a dog comes out, then you try something else. But I remember on this one occasion, I shook the gate. I think I was in South Central LA. And I walked inside, and there was a pit bull waiting for me that was not leashed on the front door. And I was like, oh, man, I could just read the headlines. Asian, you know, eaten by uh, a pit bull. And uh, I said, this is not good. So I just looked at him, and uh, the Holy Spirit just helped me. I just stared him down and started yelling and backed my way out. I had another friend of mine that got bit on the nose by an animal, pit bull, and he he actually had to get plastic surgery. And he looks pretty good, by the way. They did a good job. But we are not talking here about being bitten by a dog. We're talking about a 300-plus pound cat. I just came back from a honeymoon in uh, Kenya, and it was phenomenal. But the, the difference was there was some distance between us and these lions. I don't know how many of you have heard the story of Siegfried and Roy, that uh, circus act. Evidently, they were going through some routine, and this animal named Montecor, a 380-pound cat, broke the routine and was edging toward the side of the stage. And a freak accident, the trainer fell over the paw of this animal, and in an instant, Montecor was on his neck and sliced his jugular vein. Can you imagine? Shook him like a rag doll and dragged him across the stage, And uh, miraculously, he survived, but I saw a video clip of him five years later. He did not look the same at all. Can you imagine? And Daniel is here. Let's modernize it a little bit. Imagine that spy satellites are trained on your window, and you know that the moment that you kneel down and pray that morning, that you are food for the lions. I remember the scariest thing when I was in public school was cafeteria time, lunchtime, because I knew that I had to pray. And I would do the most ridiculous prayers. I would act like I was tying my shoe or pray with my eyes open. But we're not talking about peer pressure. We're talking about being eaten by a lion. And this is the point of everything that I'm trying to talk about here tonight. If you forget everything else, Daniel would rather die than miss his devotions. Daniel would rather be eaten by a lion than miss his time with God. Now, I want you to think about that. The implications of Daniel. Here's Daniel, and he's no longer a teenager. He's no longer 17 years of age. Not that it makes a difference. He's a senior citizen. He's during the last years of his life, and he knows that the moment he gets up that morning and has his devotions like he has his entire life, that he will be food 
for the lions. Daniel would rather die than miss his time with God. Now, I remember when I gave my heart to the Lord many years ago. It was a euphoric experience on the hills of Pennsylvania right after a canvassing program. And uh, I accepted the Lord into my heart for the first time. I was introduced into this word, um, spiritual disciplines. You ever heard that thing before? You know, discipline, especially connected with spiritual, is not a word that we're very privy to in the 21st century. And I would have these wonderful propositions of what I would be doing every morning. I'd set my alarm clock. Can anyone empathize with me in this room? I'm going to get up at 4.30 a.m. and I would set that thing and then that alarm would go off and I will test, I'll be honest before God here this evening, that I would hit that snooze button for an hour sometimes, every 10 minutes, and it was the worst sleep in the world. And then I'd get up and I'd rush out that morning and I'd missed my time with Jesus. Devotions was an integral part in the life of Daniel. And I'd just like to point out three different angles about why the devotional life is so important. And I've named them with R, just as a mnemonic device so that we could remember here. And the first R here tonight as to some corollaries as to why the devotional life is so important is relationship. You know, relationships are built on time. And I'm not talking here tonight about righteousness by devotions. Don't get me wrong. Relationships are built on something that we call time. And time is an integral part in God's love language with us. Now, I read this book not too long ago. It's called The Five Languages of Love by Gary Chapman. And the uh, premise of this book is essentially simple. It says that there are five modalities for how we show love to one another, especially in relationships that are a little bit more intimate. But even in platonic relationships, this is true as well. And they go like this, acts of service. And the premise also goes on to say, if you want to know which one you actually are, you kind of analyze what you tend to give. And acts of service is one. If you're an acts of service individual, you tend to show your love to another individual by serving them. And my parents, my mom is an acts of service individual. When she wants to show her love to me, she cooks my favorite meal or irons my clothes. And I'm just kidding. But or things like that. Acts of service is one. Words of affirmation. This is an individual that feels loved by um, compliments or affirming type of gestures and so forth. Gifts. I work for an evangelist that was big into gifts. Every time he tried to show his love, he would always be giving me things. That's one. And then another one is physical touch. You ever ever have an individual that is, um, whenever you're talking with them, they're always touching you or wanting to give you a hug. That's an individual that is physical touch. And the last one is quality time. Now, I believe that God is every one of these modalities, but I believe that God is big on time. The whole notion of the Sabbath is that God exists in time and space and wants to communicate with you and me. Here we have a statement from Steps to Christ, page 100. The relations between God and each soul are as distinct and full as though there were not another soul upon the earth to share his watch care, not another soul for which he gave his beloved son. I want you to think about that statement. It says that God's relations between Each soul are distinct and full as though there were not another soul upon the earth. That means that when you kneel down in your private devotions, 
to spend your time with God that is intimate, personal time with the God of the universe. And he sees you as though out of 6.5 billion people as the only person in the entire world. You know, I went to Camp Asabal on a ministerial retreat and I was single at the time. So they put us in this cabin with all these other single individuals. Lauren knows what I'm talking about. And uh, they call it the snoring cabin just because of the dynamics there. But anyways, there was this one individual that I connected with. Um, he was new in ministry. And so I was like, uh, got in a dialogue with him. And he told me, I, got, um, I met my wife over the Internet. And I was like, this is going to be a fascinating conversation. So I, I started dialoguing some more. And he says, I proposed to my wife and um, made plans to go over there and get married to her without ever having met. Can you imagine? And he says their relationship progressed. They got to know each other. They would chat and have email and so forth. And for a period of months, they planned this wedding. And he was going to go over there, marry her and bring her back to the States without ever having met this individual. And I went to him and I said, Brother, what were you going to do if you got off that plane and you were going to look at this woman that was going to be your wife and you say, Oh, Lord. (laughs) What have I done? Or she looks at you and says, Oh, I hope this is brother, not him. (laughs) What are you going to do? And he said something to me that I will never forget. He says that they spent so much time together that when they met face to face, their relationship went on without a hitch. And I got to thinking about that. How many of you in this room, GYC 2007, have ever met Jesus face to face before? Anyone? Anyone want to be so bold to guess and say, I met Jesus face to face before? Now, I have news for you here tonight. Jesus is a person, amen? Jesus is not a theological proposition, a syllogism, some idea, a concept. Jesus is not even this. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus, you know, this draws us close to Jesus. We should study our Bibles. But Jesus is not an idea. He's a person. Now, if Jesus were to walk in the back of this room, this auditorium here tonight, and say, I don't know what he would say, hello, good evening, GYC. What would be your initial gut reaction. You ever meet someone that you don't really know, but uh, there's a lot of them I kind of see. I don't really know their names, but I know that I've seen them before. It's kind of like you have this curious smile as you're going by, like, hi. (laughs) I remember I walked into Michigan Conference men's bathroom and Doug Batcher was speaking and I opened the bathroom and there he was. And the problem was he didn't know me. And so I just walked in the room. Is it going to be like that? Or is it going to be like, Jesus, I know you. I have a relationship with you. I've spent time with you. Or is it quite the opposite? You're going to hide underneath your chair or run out of the room. Your initial gut reaction, if you're honest here tonight, to Jesus walking into this room is a good indication as to your relationship with him. It's a good indication as to the dynamics of your devotional life. How much time are you spending with him? You know, there is this interesting concept 
of reclusion as we go to our second R. For our first R is relationship. We need to spend time with Jesus. And the second one is reclusion. I want to read to you this statement from Gene Fleming. We live in a noisy, busy world. Silence and solitude are not 20th century words. They fit in the era of Victorian lace, high-buttoned shoes, and kerosene lamps, better than our ages of television, video arcade, and joggers wired with their earphones. We have become a people with an aversion to quiet and an uneasiness with being alone. Finding focus in a whirlwind world is a difficult thing to do. You know, there's two disciplines that are dynamically important to the spiritual life. They are silence and solitude. I want you to think about that. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness alone. John the Baptist spent time alone in the wilderness. Paul spent time alone before his earthly ministry. And there's something to be said about reclusion and time being alone. Now, I'm a Gen Xer, and I'll be the first one to say that um, solitude and silence is not the easiest thing for me to do. My parents, when I was growing up, I had some interesting dynamics. They used to have to run a vacuum to put me to sleep at night. And I constantly growing up, I had to have white noise going around me. And then the Lord called me to gospel ministry, and he sent me canvassing big books to the hills of Vermont, And I remember eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the middle of a cornfield and saying, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? (laughs) And it was that summer that I learned the beauty of a solitude and silence. Now, don't get me wrong. We shouldn't spend all time in, in silence. We need to have a balance between the mountain and the multitude. And if we spend too much time in the mountain, we become irrelevant. If we spend too much time with the multitude... Um, we become shallow. And so those are some interesting things that we want to keep in mind. In Psalms 40, verse 12, going on very quickly, he says, Be still and know that I am God. So our first R is relationship. Our second one is reclusion. And our third one is rescripting. I want to read to you this statement about rescripting. Everyone has a script. It is that sheet of paper that we hold in our minds. It tells us how we think, what to say, what to wear, our facial expressions to use, what decisions to make, how to walk, what to read, what to eat, and what to wake up to, why to love, and why to live. This script is written by someone else. Some of us know this, and some of us do not. We cannot write our own scripts. Usually, these scripts are written by Confucius, Adam Smith, Thomas Jefferson, Rush Limbaugh, Dad, or some above are all of the above. Scripts are fed by academic education, advertising, media, propaganda, and television. This is where we get our values from. And this is the brilliance of the media and the arts because you may not read the philosophy of Albert Camus or Friedrich Nietzsche or Plato or Aristotle, but believe it or not, you are getting these scripts fed through the media, and this is why it's so important, amen, that we pay attention to what we read and to what we listen to on a daily basis. And this is the brilliance of Satan as he sets these things up. I want to read to you this statement from Great Controversy, page 88. As the storm approaches, a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message but have not been sanctified through obedience to the truth, abandon their positions and join the ranks of the opposition. By uniting with the world and partaking of its spirit, they have come to view matters in nearly the same light, and when the test is brought, 
they are prepared to choose the easy and popular side. These are Adventist friends. And when the final test comes, they got scripted and they join the ranks of the opposition. You know, at GYC, we've picked this theme of Romans chapter 12, verse 2, of being not conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds that you might prove what is that acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, many of us that have heard this message here tonight about relationship, rescripting, and reclusion, many times when we hear about the importance of the devotional life, we are come up with a certain challenge, and it's like, I don't have enough time for devotions. You know, between juggling our work and our school and the different dynamics that we have to go through, we say there is simply not enough time for devotions. I believe that the secret of balance in life is in balance with God. And I want to read to you this statement from C.H. Spurgeon. And he says these words, Sometimes we think that we are too busy to pray. This is a great mistake, for praying is a saving of time. You must remember Luther's remark, I have so much to do today that I shall never get through it without less than three hours of prayer. If we have no time, we must make time. For if God has given us time for secondary duties, he must have given us time for primary ones. And drawing near to him is a primary duty, and we must let nothing set it on one side. Your other engagements will run smoothly if you do not forget your engagement with God. I believe that if you place God at the center of your life, if you place him and seek first the kingdom of God, believing that all these things will be added unto you, that God will make your day work in the most beautiful way. Amen. Now, I remember several years ago, I had the privilege and opportunity of going on a mission trip to Africa. And I spent about three weeks out there. It was a phenomenal experience. I um, had the privilege of doing evangelism and reaching out to a community. I came back to the States, and suddenly I broke out into fever and chills. I thought it was the common flu. And uh, I didn't think much of it. I went through six, seven days of sweat and chills and so forth. And finally, I realized that this was not the ordinary flu. And um, I received this incredible impression that night saying, David, you need to go to the emergency room tonight. And so I'm allergic to needles and nurses. And so I said, Lord, anything but tonight. I simply do not want to go to the emergency room tonight. And finally, the, the Holy Spirit, I believe, kept impressing my heart and said, David, you need to go to the emergency room tonight. And so I crawled upstairs. I was living at home at the time. And I talked with my parents and I said, something's wrong. This is not the ordinary flu. I need to go tonight. And so they whisked me off to the emergency room. And the doctor evidently had been to Africa as a missionary. And so he took one look at me and he said, David, uh, I don't have good news. I believe that you have malaria. And I found out very quickly what malaria was. A mosquito comes and injects a parasite into your uh, bloodstream. And that parasite goes from red blood cell to red blood cell and multiplies. And before long, that red blood cell actually bursts. And they say it's between six or seven days before your entire red blood cell is completely depleted. 
and then you either get kidney failure or liver failure or death. And I had waited six days. And I want to tell you that it was surreal sitting in that emergency room, sweat pouring down my face. I was looking into my um, Korean mom and dad's face and they were looking down at me and the sheet behind me was completely soaked. And I thought to myself, this is bizarre. This is something you read out of Reader's Digest, you know? <laughs> Not something that happens to me. Here I was, 18, 19 years of age. I had my whole life ahead of me. And the doctor told me, virtually, you are on the brink of death. And I want to tell you that when you reach the end of your life, that there is no fog, there is no mist, suddenly values and priorities crystallized like never before. And suddenly I realized what was essentially important in life. Number one, my relationship with God. Believe you me, my devotional life became very, very important. I wished that I had spent more time with God. And it was at that moment when I reached death that I realized that everything else pales into mere insignificance if your relationship and your devotional life is not on par. Now, I'm not going to leave you hanging here tonight. Obviously, I made it. And um, they, uh, they came back with a test, and it was positive. They treated me for quinine, and uh, I lost a lot of brain cells. But uh, the Lord has been very good to me as a result. <laughs> and I want to read to you this statement from Steps to Christ. Consecrate yourself to God in the morning. Make this your very first work. Let your prayer be. Take me as holy thine. I lay all my plans at your feet. Use me today in your service. Abide with me and let all my work be wrought in thee. This is a daily matter. Each morning, consecrate yourself to God for that day. Surrender all your plans to him to be carried out or to be given up as his providence should indicate. Thus, day by day, you may be giving your life into the hands of God and thus your life will be molded more and more after the life of Christ. And I want to encourage you, GYC, you can know all the theology. Don't get me wrong, we should have right theology, amen? You can attend all the public meetings and have all the right answers and know all the standards. But if your inner life of devotion is not on par, when the final test comes, you will, you will uh, like JC says, you will join the easy and the popular side. Not too long ago, I had the uh, privilege and opportunity of going on a family reunion on the West Coast. Uh, my grandfather was 80 years of age, and there was a certain sense among all of us that this was probably the last time that we'd be together as a family. And it was an interesting experience because I hadn't seen my cousins in a while. And uh, it's, you know, you kind of exist in this time warp mentally, and when you see them, you're like, oh, you've grown, or you've really changed a lot. And we had this wonderful experience. My grandfather, who's a retired minister, addressed the group, and he came to me afterwards and gave me this keychain. And I'm not the sentimental type, but he flipped it over and on the back he had engraved a picture of the second coming. And he said, David, I want you to take this with you and keep it close to your heart and I, remember, I want you to remember the second coming. I didn't think much of it. I took it with me and I realized that as a minister of the gospel, 
he wanted to be alive when Jesus came the second time. But he realized that possibly he would not have that wish and he wanted me to picture the second coming, keep it on my heart and live my life accordingly. You know, there's going to be a lot of things that you wish when Jesus comes. And I guarantee it's not going to be, I wish I had a better wardrobe. Or I wish I had a bigger 401k. Or I wish that, you know, my finances were better in order. But you just may wish that your inner life of devotion, heaven forbid, was on par. I want to read this statement as we begin to close here tonight. When we read the lives of saints, this is by Bridget Herman, we are struck by a certain large leisure that went hand in hand with remarkable effectiveness. They were never hurried. They did comparatively few things, and these not necessarily striking or important, and they troubled very little about their influence, yet they always seemed to hit the mark. Every bit of their life told, their simplest actions had a distinction and an exquisiteness which suggested the artist. The reason is not far to seek. Their sainthood lay in their habit of referring the smallest actions to God. They lived in God. They acted from a pure love towards God. They were as free from self-regard as from the slavery to the good opinion of others. God saw and God rewarded. What else needed they? They possessed God and possessed themselves in God. Thence, the inalienable dignity of these meek, quiet figures, those seem to produce such marvelous effects with such humble materials. You know, if we live in God, if we exist in God, if we're moved by God and we live that inner life of devotion, I believe like Martin Luther, you can always hit the mark and your life will be a life of effectiveness and impact. I want to invite you to stand with me as we pray and as we dedicate our lives here tonight to that inner life of devotion. Father in heaven, we just thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to study the book of Daniel. And with every head bowed and eyes closed, I just want to make an appeal here tonight. Lord, I'm just a feeble, humble instrument. You, you know my frailty and my weakness. But tonight, we have talked about the inner life of devotion, how the secret of Daniel's success was bound in his primitive godliness, in his prayer life. And I'm just wondering here tonight, I know that these, these aisles are packed in, but if you'd like to make a commitment to make devotions a priority in 2007, you want to come up higher in your devotional life. You want to have an experience like Daniel in which you would rather die than miss your devotions. And you want that experience with God. You want to say, Lord, by your help, by your strength, in 2007, I wanted to be a life like Daniel. I wanted to be a life in which I make devotions a priority. We may fail, but by God's grace, I want to make an impact. I want you to invite you to slip on down toward the front of this aisle.
as we dedicate ourselves to God. If you're in the center of the aisle, uh, just move back so that individuals can move up. If you want to say, Lord, in 2007, I want to make it a life of devotion. The secret of God changing the world begins with you and me. And you want to come up here for a special prayer and say, Lord Jesus, I want 2007 in which to be a life in which I dedicate it to a devotional life. God changes the world by changing you and me. Father in heaven, you've seen these individuals come forward here tonight. And I just pray and ask that you would seal them with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we want you to come soon. We believe that we are on the edge of eternity. And we want it to be that when you come the second time in person, flesh and blood, that we will know you because we spent time with you this side of heaven. We pray that you'd seal these decisions with your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.